Sometimes I like to say that Latinos are the invisible people. If they don't have their citizenship papers or their driver's license or any ID or their ITIN number, they are invisible. They don't want to be seen, not by anybody else, but their own people. So one thing that we want to do in our English class is talk about or teach them how do you talk to a police officer if your English is limited. So we were telling them that yesterday. That's one of the goals of our class is how do you function in an all-English, practically speaking, community. Welcome to the Center for Congregations podcast. This is a conversation for anyone invested in sustaining and strengthening their faith communities. The Center for Congregations is an Indiana nonprofit that exists because we believe that the work of your congregation is essential. Our mission is to strengthen your congregation, helping you find the right information or expertise for your congregation's needs. We're able to do this work because of the generosity of the Lilly Endowment. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of the Center for Congregations podcast. I am one of your co-hosts, Ben Tapper, and I'm in central Indiana, and I am joined by the, drumroll please, bodacious Matt Burke. Matt, great to have you here. I like that, bodacious. Hey, everybody. Matt Burke, Fort Wayne Office, Education Director and the Northeast Director for the Center for Congregations. We had the pleasure of speaking with Sandy Garcia today, who's a minister at Amistad Cristiana Presbyterina. She and her husband moved to Fort Wayne from, I believe, Los Angeles during 2020, and they have been kind of adjusting to life here in Indiana and joining this ministry at the same time. Sandy is also a student at Christian Theological Seminary, which I also graduated from a few years ago, so a good connection there. And it was just a fun conversation discussing not only the Latinx Christian community at large, but also what that is like in Fort Wayne, or at least the part of Fort Wayne that Sandy is in. So Matt, again, this is another interview that is dealing with the ministry and people and experts in your backyard. And so I love to hear your thoughts on how this intersects with your work as the education director and a resource consultant. Yeah, it's an interesting dynamic for me because, you know, being a white male living in a predominantly white part of town, Northeast Fort Wayne, it's been great as a part of this occupation, getting to know the city and even just the broader region of Northeastern Indiana better. Because I think if I had had some kind of different job or different experience, I wouldn't even know that there is so much multiculturalism that exists in this part of Indiana. For instance, we have one of the largest Burmese populations, I think, in the United States here in Fort Wayne. And as you'll hear in the interview, there's actually quite a big Latinx population here in Fort Wayne as well. And I understand that up in Goshen, there are even more Hispanic and Spanish-speaking communities and congregations. So this job has given me the opportunity Mm -hmm. to see just how multicultural, you know, when people think Indiana, they don't think multicultural. (laughs) You think Los Angeles, you think New York, Chicago. But it's interesting that there is such a diversity of peoples, even in Fort Wayne, Indiana, which is, you know, at least last time I checked, was like the 75th largest city in the United States. And even in more rural communities, even like an hour and a half northeast of here, northwest of here. So just from a personal standpoint, 
the recognition and the opening of my eyes to that is really interesting. And then also there are congregations that reach out and are asking the questions of how can we help other congregations or other people who are from multicultural backgrounds? What are the ways that we can support them? And I was just talking to a pastor yesterday that unbeknownst to me, I hadn't talked to him for quite a while, but they have resettled, I think, 10 families from Ukraine over the last year because of the Russia-Ukraine conflict. So I think congregations are increasingly trying to find ways that they can support people who are from different cultures than their own. And that's really encouraging to me because that really dovetails well with my understanding of what the Christian faith is about and what it's supposed to be. So I've seen it a lot in recent months, recent years. What about you? I mean, yeah, similarly, I was trying to look up to see what the most recent data are for Indiana's racial breakdown. And I'm having trouble finding data that I trust. But I know here in Indianapolis, you know, we too see a growing Southeast Asian population, particularly among the Burmese community. We've got a lot of African refugees and immigrants, especially from Western and Central Africa, and a growing Spanish-speaking population here in the city as well. And so, you know, I don't know what the numbers are for the entire state, but I think in like the Northeast region, Northwest region, and Central I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, we're approaching a quarter of the population in those regions being Spanish speaking. So it is clearly growing. There's a lot of diversity and that's really exciting to me. And, you know, it means that at the center, we are having to kind of recognize where our growing areas are in terms of building relationships. Sometimes those might be just a language barrier, right, which you would expect and you've got to find a way to work around. But also just in the relationship building, it's important to kind of understand some of their cultural intricacies and norms, and even just to recognize, and I love that Sandy spoke to this, the diversity within the Spanish-speaking culture and population here, right? And so I want to make sure that I'm approaching a pastor or a leader that is from Guatemala, you know, with the same level of like curiosity and desire to understand that I would be approaching a pastor from the Congo or from Liberia. You know, I think it's easy to make the assumption that, oh, this person is Spanish-speaking, therefore I can just fill in all the blanks I would have about this Mexican pastor I know or this El Salvadorian pastor I know. And that's not the case, right, um, because of how diverse these populations are. And so I appreciated that reminder from Sandy, and I think it will continue to inform how I approach this work as a mm-hmm. resource consultant and I think how our system approaches it by and large. Yeah, you raised such a great point, Ben, about the just the sensitivity to people from a given culture and even understanding that individuals within a given culture are also different. <laughs> so we can't just assume that someone is exactly the same because they share a linguistic background. So a good heads up for, I think, just anyone as we exist and move through our worlds and as we're trying to do so in compassionate and caring ways, making sure that we are yeah. just paying attention to individual cultures and also yep. just individual people. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So this conversation, I think, is pretty rich, and I think you'll glean a lot from it. And so I don't know that we need to add a lot more on the front end, Matt. We can just kind of jump into it and let folks hear the great conversation we have with Sandy. Yeah, sounds great. So up next is Sandy Garcia from Amistad Cristiana Presbyterian. All right, everyone, welcome back. We are here with Sandy Garcia. She is the wife of Pastor Martin Garcia at Amistad Cristiana Presbyterina here in Fort Wayne, Indiana. She's also pursuing her Master's of Divinity degree at CTS, Christian Theological Seminary in Indianapolis. So thanks so much for being here with us, Sandy. Thank you so much, guys. It's really great to be here. I'm excited. Thank you for the invite. Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about Amistad. 
Well, Amistad, we actually moved here from California, Los Angeles, two years ago. Somebody told me yesterday, two years, but I could have sworn it's been longer. We moved here because Martin, my husband, got hired to work there as the pastor, and he does the sermon bilingually. So if you speak only English, you can come to the sermon and still understand, because I don't know how he does this, but he does the service, you know, in English and Spanish. Hmm. And so if I had to do that, I'd get my brain mixed up. But it's really cool to see that our congregation is, we have a few white people, about five of them. And then the majority of us are Hispanic, Latino, Latinas. So mostly from Central America, Guatemala, Venezuela, a couple from Mexico, El Salvador. So we have something about maybe 60, 70 people. And like I said, some of them are, you know, born here, so they already understand the English and are a little fuzzy on the Spanish. So the bilingual component helps them as well. And some of the the moms, the grandmas and the aunts that came from the other countries need the sermon in Spanish. So that is something that they love. They also, I noticed, love to communicate and talk to each other and just share that they find somebody like themselves, you know, here in Fort Wayne. And that is one thing that Martin and I were so surprised when we came to visit for the first time here in Fort Wayne that we went to Amistad and we looked around the city and we were in shock. We were like, where did all these brown people come from? You know, we did not realize that in the middle of the Midwest or whatever, mm-hmm. that there would be Latinos. So we always thought Texas, we always thought California, New Mexico, Utah, you know, all those Western states. But coming here was a really wonderful surprise to see so much diversity, not just Latinos, but other diversities that live here in Fort Wayne. So it was like, it, like leaving Los Angeles wasn't so different. Mm-hmm. So it's been great. You know, in the congregation, sometimes we get Black people, African American, and not very many, but they are primarily taking the yoga class that we do on Tuesdays and Thursdays. So that's been an interesting sort of shift. We're trying to get them to come to service more, not just the yoga. So we want to somehow Mm -hmm. make a bridge between that activity and the Sunday service. So one of the thoughts that we're doing is, and that's going to be my role, is a new worshiping community. So my congregation, our little congregation, hopefully will be within Amistad, but focused on the people who are more English dominant or speak only English, but are attending the activities around Amistad that are for some reason not coming to the service, maybe because they don't know they can still come even though they only speak, you know, English. So it's a changing congregation. It's the changing church because we're starting to wake it up, so to speak. It's been quiet for a while and Now people are coming for yoga. They're coming for English classes on Wednesdays. We had like 35 people yesterday to come to our English class. So we split the group into two. It was great. It was great to see them. So our little church is starting to wake up and hopefully rock the community there in Southeast Fort Wayne. Yeah, that's great to hear. Yeah, and it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, coming from Los Angeles and finding such diversity in Fort Wayne. But in my experience of the Midwest, communities are so segregated that my experience of Fort Wayne has not necessarily been one of a large multicultural population. And so I think that illustrates the point that 
we may be living in the midst of a multicultural environment and not even know it because we just don't happen to see people who are different from us in a day-to-day basis, but they're part of our community, they're part of our town. And I'm also curious about the makeup of your congregation, because I think from a white English-speaking perspective, so often we think of Spanish-speaking as a monoculture. But you mentioned that you've got members of the congregation from all different parts of Central America, some from Mexico, some who have been born here, some who have not been born here. So talk a little bit about how even within a Spanish-speaking congregation, Mm -hmm. multiculturalism is an aspect of who you are. Yes, I forgot to mention, we got a bunch of Colombians, okay, all of a sudden in the English classes, and now they're starting to come to the service. One thing I notice is, even though we all speak Spanish, there's uh, different speeds. So somebody from Colombia might speak Spanish faster, or skip a few vowels, or say a word that I don't understand. And you know, someone from Cuba speaks even faster. So, I mean, I understand and speak Spanish, but I'm Mexican American. So it's like I was born here. So I will understand it, but not at the speed that that person is speaking of. Like, for example, the words could be different. For example, like the word grass, I'm used to saying sacate, which is more indigenous to Mexico. And they would say pasto. Pasto. So I'm I'm not used to saying pasto, but I'll say that now because I'm thinking about what they're thinking about. When we went to the garden, I thought of sacate, but I said pasto. But they were like, what's sacate? And I said, well, that's pasto. You know, it's like, so the words are different. The speed of the language is different. And just where they work, some of them are working more as mechanics if they're from coming from Mexico. Some are house cleaners. You know, we talked about our jobs yesterday in our English class. But I feel that some of them, not a lot of them, but some of them are lonely because they come here, they leave their families behind. And finding somebody else from their country means so much to them. Hmm. Not just from Latin America, but somebody from Colombia, for example. We have a family that came here that lives in our neighborhood and they rented a house, but they don't have furniture. They have like blow up mattresses. But they're still surviving and going to school. And, you know, what's really neat about Amistad I'm noticing is that even though the cultures are segregated within Amistad, we have all these different people from Latin America. And then, like I mentioned, we have the Blacks going to the yoga class and some Latinos, like I go to the yoga class. Um, So we're starting to see a little bit of a shift in the segregation I want to see a little more, maybe Burmese come in, or you might know him, Mike Spath. He does Middle East Peace in Indiana, and I'm blanking on the organization, so you have to help me with that. Yeah, it's the Indiana Center for Middle East Peace. Thank you. I don't know why I was getting mixed up. He has his office there. So Mike is the guy who runs that, or is not in charge of it, because he's got his other membership and board. But The neat thing about having him there and his group is that we'll get Afghans coming in also. Mm. So when he asked us if he could have his office there, we were like, yes, please have your office here because that opens up the door for other people to come through. And Diane Rogers does the yoga. She's black. So when she came and said, can we do a yoga studio here? We were like, yes. So that, you know, she brought people in that may never have come to Amistad. And to be honest, it's like I see a little bit more of multiculture going in there 
that's what our goal is, is to try to stop the segregation. And with every year, we hope to develop more things, activities. My dream would be to have like a little farmer's market out there hmm. next summer, or maybe even in the fall and just have food trucks. The community itself is starting to be starting to look and see. So, and we have schools around us that have different, like Abbott has mostly Latino kids. Then we have Levon Scott that has Burmese, Black, some Latinos, and then Irwin that's a mix of everything. So if they start seeing that segregation sort of disappear little by little, it's step by step, but that's the goal. And I think it's not like happening right away, but I know it'll take time, but it's nice to see it starting to happen. So, yeah, yeah. this leads me to a two part question. Hopefully I'll remember both parts. <laughs> but the first has to do with Afro Latino identity. Yeah. So I am black and biracial. And so I live with an awareness that being African-American can look very different. Like you can have extraordinarily light skin and extraordinarily dark skin and still be African-American. Right. And I'm kind of aware of the same phenomenon in the Latino or Latinx community, but it didn't sink in for me until I, through CTS, as part of my last year there, my cohort took a trip to Colombia. We went to Bogota and Cali. And in Cali, I was like looking around just surprised at how large the Afro-Latino population was. And I was like, oh my God, like these are black folks that are clearly like Latino and Hispanic as well. And it's like sunk in a little more deeply for me than it had when, you know, moving around in the U.S. And so I'm wondering what the Afro-Latino population is like in Fort Wayne or in your community. So maybe that's the first question. Like, What is that population like and what wrinkles does that add to this multiculturalism that you've been talking about? Here's the neat thing about that. We have a friend that came from Arizona and he's Afro-Latino. He's Cuban. Mm -hmm. And when you first see him, he looks black. Yeah. Right? But then he's Cuban. So his name is Josiel, Josiel Perez. And he came because he is doing a financial literacy workshop. That's something else we want to do at Amistad is teach people about budgets and how to get ahead. And they, they're not thinking about retirement, you know, because they're thinking about living day to day and, you know, paycheck by paycheck and things. So he came to do a workshop. His mission was to teach them about retirement, but then we, we realized, whoa, we have to bring it down more because they're barely like at the level of how do I do a budget, for example. He threw everybody off <laughs> because when he first walked in the room, he's black, right? Yeah. But then everybody, when he started speaking in Spanish and explaining that he's from Cuba and he has a little Cuban accent, they were like, you know, this is a podcast, so we can't see my face, but they were just like in shock. <laughs> Because to them, this was new. Some of them already are aware of Black Latinos, but some of them were just like, what? So then I did a little experiment with Josiel. I said to him, hey, let's walk the neighborhood. Let's go walk around, mm -hmm. you know, our neighborhood around Amistad. And the neighborhood is primarily Black, Burmese, a little bit Afghan, some Latinos, right? And so it was interesting to see because we're walking. The Black guy, Black folks are just looking at us like, you know, they're just squinting their eyes like, oh, okay, so there's a Latina walking with a black guy. Okay. Mm -hmm. But then he would say, hello, hola, como están? And he would start speaking in Spanish and they'd be like, what? <laughs> what is happening? <laughs> yes. And then the Latinos, we would walk by and Josia would start, you know, he's very, he's very talkative, very charming person. So he would start a conversation in Spanish with them, conversation in English with the black people. And so everybody was just like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> if anything, 
I think our little experiments show people, hey, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover. Yeah. Yeah, it's good to dive deeper and really get to know the person before you look at them and go, oh, that person's uh, from India. Exactly. Or that person's from, you know, like when I was teaching in elementary school, a lot of my first graders, if they see an Asian person, they would say they were from China. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'd be like, no, we had a discussion about, no, there's different cultures within Asia. Yeah. So you can't judge a book by its cover. And um, I think Hosiel is actually thinking of moving here to Fort Wayne. And he's a jazz musician and also does the financial stuff. So hopefully we're crossing our fingers. Hopefully that happens. And I can do like a, a service in jazz or makes yeah. a little jazz in there. You know, that'd be kind of fun. He's bringing his mom from Cuba, getting her here, you know, through customs, whatever they have to go through. So that's why he's probably going to come back in October to visit. But yeah, everybody's always asking me about him. When is he coming back? Because they were interested in the financial literacy and they were just wanting to know more about him and that whole right. dynamic, you know, because it's pretty neat. Like I said, it was a shocker to all of them. It was great. I loved it. And I don't think, you know, I could be wrong, but I don't know that the Afro-Latino population is very large in Indiana, at least not in certain parts of Indiana for sure. And so I could see that kind of puzzling people. <laughs> Yes, now there's going to be two. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but the second part of this question is, I'm wondering, and if it's not very large in your community, then it might not matter. But I know, depending upon who you are, if you identify as Afro-Latino, Afro-Latinx, you might also identify as Black. And so I'm wondering what shifts you noticed in your community post-2020, you know, when we had kind of the death of, of George Floyd and some of the uprisings that took place, what was that conversation like for your community? And, and I imagine it had kind of a different impact than maybe some of the other communities that represent who listens to this podcast. Well, we came here in 2020 from Los Angeles. Okay. So our experience, it's a little bit more, I guess, well, I, I'm thinking more of the police, for example, mm-hmm. you know, just again, I tend to being a teacher and being in for, and, you know, I was kindergarten, first grade, second grade. We talked about how if you're brown, black, we tend to be more in Los Angeles. It's not so much as here, mm-hmm. but there's always that fear of the police are behind me in the car and they're just literally just behind you. And then they change lanes. But even I go through that, like, okay, what do they want? You know, and I'm a citizen here and everything. I'm fine. I have a driver's license. I'm pull me over. I can speak English. No problema. No problem. You know, but a lot of people in our congregation are not citizens, so they don't have a license. So they have a fear of just driving to the market because they're scared of being pulled over. Or anytime you see the police around, they're just, you know, hiding under a rock. Sometimes I like to say that Latinos are the invisible people. If they don't have their citizenship papers or their driver's license or any ID or their ITIN number, they are invisible. They don't want to be seen, mm-hmm. not by anybody else, but their own people. So one thing that we want to do in our English class is talk about or teach them how do you talk to a police officer if your English is limited. So we were telling them that yesterday. That's one of the goals of our class is how do you function in an all English, practically speaking, community and another thing that we've learned, too, is like if they go to Walmart and they go through the self-checkout, 
they don't know like how to scan something. So they might get in trouble or not get in trouble, but the person will walk up to them and the salesperson. And if they don't know if that person can't speak Spanish and they can't speak English, that they're going to get in trouble and, you know, be arrested or something. So one thing we told them is, you know, why don't you just go to the cashier for right now? We may take this group that we have for English class to Walmart and show them how to scan stuff. You know, it's becoming not just an English class, but like a day-to-day survival class. Life skills. Life skills. Yeah. We had someone from, I think it was Guatemala. We did her ITIN and she didn't know how to mail it in the post office because she's never gone. So we mailed it for her. But the same lady wanted to get a Costco membership because she has a large family, but heard that Costco is cheaper. So I went with her to get her membership because she was worried about the English. And it turned out that the guy who helped us was from Texas originally. So he spoke Spanish. But here's the interesting thing. He was born in Texas, knows Spanish, but didn't want to use his Spanish because he felt that it would make him less of a person or just not less of a person, but he felt that speaking English made him more powerful, more above, Mm. above the Spanish speaking lady. And I had to tell him, no, that's not true. Coming from California, you know, Los Angeles, that's not true. I mean, one thing I wish we had here and my dream for Amistad would be to do like a day school where it's a dual language program because I taught in a dual language program and my eyes were like open. I mean, in kindergarten, the kids speak Spanish for five hours in the day, speak, read, write, and then one hour they speak in English. So you get these little gringos, these little American kids come in, hueritos, blonde, whatever, and only speaking English. And then you get the little, the brown kids coming in, only speaking Spanish. And it's beautiful to see how they bridge. You know, there's like a bridge. They acknowledge each other's culture, language, and they want to learn about each other. And so by two weeks in kindergarten, two weeks, they're becoming fluent in both languages. And I would love to see more of that dual language come up because I think that bridges so much of the knowledge of just learning about each other. You know, like Matt was saying, if the segregation starts to break down, once we start to like, just go and see each other a little bit, Mm. like with Josia, walk around the neighborhood. (laughs) I mean, that was really cool. But yeah, I myself got pulled over once by a police officer because I didn't have my stickers on yet. Mm. And the first thing I noticed was she was a woman. (laughs) So I thought, man, She's a white woman in a primarily man's job. Mm-hmm. So I thought, you know what? It's all right. It was fine because I had sympathized with her because even being white, just being a woman. And I think just saying that just being a woman gives you kind of a little bit more of a challenge, even a Latina woman. People think, oh, she's going to be a pastor one day in my culture, you know, in my Latino culture. And they're just like, oh, she's going to be a pastor. Okay. You know, because again, it's like they're used to more of a male dominant kind of thing. So I got all these scholarships for CTS. I'm grateful. I don't have to pay a penny this year. And because I think that's just not something you see. Mm. It's, you know, and my goal is to get my doctor of ministry because again, there are not very many brown people who are at the doctor 
level. So Martin, my husband, he's getting his doctor of ministry right now. But it would be great for more of us to do that. And just in yesterday's class, I told the group, I said, one of the things we want to do is take you guys to the library. Because when we go to the library, when I go to the library, I don't see a lot of brown people there, which is, again, we want to be invisible. When you go to the library, there's a security guard. So I'm sure right then and there, they're like, oh, geez, what, what are they going to check me for? So right there, they probably don't want to you know, go in. But we want them to go so that they can see that it's not just about books and reading. There's 3D imaging lab. There's the radio station. There's books you can listen to in English that I'm going to want them to see so that they can learn more English in different ways and different medias. But I think it's stretching their minds, getting them out there is going to be really beneficial. Hmm. Yeah, that sounds like a really good program and way of trying to get people acclimated to the community and just introducing them to ways that they can move in the community and help them feel safer. Yeah, that's the key is feeling safe. And that's one thing we talked about yesterday is mistakes are okay. Mm-hmm. And I, I also use myself as an example because I'm going to school and I'm going to make mistakes in my writing. So I told them how I speak English. I, you know, when I was a girl, I spoke Spanish and then I was taught English and all that. And um, I told them, even though I was like raised in a bilingual household, my dad spoke English, my mom spoke Spanish and I get my languages mixed up all the time. So, so as we come to the, towards the end of our time here, Sandy, I'm curious about what is it about breaking down those barriers of segregation and multicultural community that, that just brings you joy? What are the elements and aspects of seeing people and being in community with people who are, have different backgrounds? What does that do for you as a person and as a follower of Jesus? It makes me realize that differences are a beautiful thing. If everything was the same, it would be so boring. You know, and I just love, even like myself, I tell everybody, I, like I was just saying, I was born here in the United States. I spoke Spanish because of my mom. My mom would take me to Mexico. My dad spoke English, even though he was Mexican descent, he was born in you know the United States. So I learned my English from him. But I think just taking Josiel in the neighborhood, it just made me realize how people are, their eyes just would light up. And that was such a beautiful thing for them to see. It was like opening doors that were closed for them before and opening minds and hearts. So I think that they were just like the surprise in their face and then the joy of finding something new was wonderful. It was like Mm -hmm. seeing a kid walk into a room and find a new toy. And they were like, oh my God, this is amazing. Like we have some Peruvians. So they made food for our fellowship time after service. And some people have never had this Peruvian dish. And so seeing their face light up with a new taste it's been a joyous experience for me. You know, it's kind of like going to a, a smorgasbord, like a buffet, so instead of just having the peanut butter and jelly sandwich every day. <laughs> it's like them going to a buffet and seeing different things and variety that you can choose from. And they are just so excited that I'm like excited for everybody and for myself as well, because up until this point, I've never heard of Burmese you know, that's a culture that I want to like get to know a little bit more. So it's just been a joyous experience for me to see all the variety within 
a place I didn't think there would be variety. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and it's interesting because, you know, we live in the same city and my experience of this city is very different. And it tells me that I need to step out more <laughs> and to try to find other cultures. Yeah. Yeah. If I can say something about that, I noticed that people who live in the north of Fort Wayne uh, or people tend to stay where they live, mm-hmm. you know, and I have always driven to different places. I just, my mom, again, she drove us to Mexico. So she's, she was a bit of an adventure freak. So I'm the same way. I, I'll drive to the north. I'll drive to southeast. I'll drive all the way to Chano Lakes to Cherubusco. When I first told my friends about Cherubusco, I said Cherubusco, <laughs> you know, like in Spanish. And they were like, oh, that sounds better than Cherubusco. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll be the one to go out there and to go see things. So I think if anything, for our listeners, get out of your neighborhood, Mm. get out, just go, go somewhere different, go to Southeast Fort Wayne. Mm -hmm. You know, I know I probably have been guilty of this. If I go to somewhere different, like one time I, you know, I went to Ohio and I saw all these Trump things. And so I, my doors were locked and I was in my car feeling small, you know, because you feel like, oh my God, you know, but I still drove past it and went home and all that. And so there is a sense of sometimes uh, vulnerability of fear, Mm -hmm. you know, but I also had friends who voted for Trump and love the guy. Right. Mm -hmm. But we just don't talk about politics. We respect each other and we are able to still be friends. I think that's important. Having that vulnerability and the getting out of your neighborhood. If you're always in the North of Fort Wayne, go somewhere different downtown, Mm -hmm. you know, that will give you a different experience. Mm-hmm. You know, come to Amistad on at Sundays at 1130 because that will, you know, you'll start to see at least the Latino culture and maybe something more as we get different and mixed up and all that. I think life is a bag of mixed stuff and it has to be for it to be exciting. Yeah. Great. Well, thank you, Sandy. Really appreciate the conversation here. If anyone wants to follow you on social media, is there anywhere folks can find you? Yeah, I'm on Facebook, Sandy Garcia, just S-A-N-D-Y-G-A-R-C-I-A. Okay. And I'm a runner, so I actually have a little sponsor called Rabbit Running Apparel. So if you look me up, you'll see nothing but a bunch of running posts. And, (laughs) you know, my apologies for that ahead of time. But that then you'll know you find me. And of course, it'll say Fort Wayne on there. Sure, there's other Sandy Garcias, but I think I'll pop up. But also, we started a website, if you want to, amistadfw.com. That's our church. You can find me there and message me there, you know, reach out to me there with questions or comments or what have you. All right. Well, we'll make sure to post those in the show notes, Sandy. And again, we appreciate your time. Thanks so much for talking with us. Thank you, guys. This was great. Welcome back. And that was Sandy Garcia. Ben, what are some takeaways from the conversation that you had? 
I just appreciated the section of the conversation. I mean, I appreciated the section of the conversation that I initiated, obviously. But getting to, to talk and hear from <laughs> Sandy about the unique experience and the reactions that she had to her Cuban friend, her Afro-Latino friend, was really interesting. Because, again, as someone who's biracial, I think about these things all the time and you know, think about, okay, what is blackness? Who's defining it? How do we define it? What do we do when our definitions differ? And... There's an additional sense of nuance that is added when you're talking about people that are Afro-Latino or Afro-Caribbean. And so I just appreciated kind of getting to think about that and to talk through it for a little bit with a member of the Latinx community. Hmm. And I'm curious to continue to learn more about it and to see how it comes up in congregational life and congregational work here in Indiana. Mm-hmm. What stood out to you? So one of the things that I can't help but think, and this might make some people mad on the front end, but just hear me out. Growing up in a predominantly white church, I think we had that classic mentality of like, we are here to help save everybody else Mm. (laughs) that, you know, short term missions trips or, you know, inner city situations, things like that. And I've been really disabused of that notion. The more that I have encountered and experienced congregational leaders from black congregations, from Latinx congregations, that they've got it going on. And I don't know if it was part of the interview or part of our pre-conversation with her, but Amistad is doing so many things in their congregation and in their community. And the same thing is true when I encounter a lot of black congregations and black congregational leaders, there is so much happening in their congregation and in their community that like, they don't need help. (laughs) They, I mean, Mm. they might need relational help. They might need people in relationship with them to come alongside and engage in the work that they're already doing. But I think it's a mistake to think that we need to somehow go into these populations, whether it be, you know, in the Dominican Republic or in downtown Fort Wayne or in downtown Indianapolis, and we have some great solution or answer to the problems that they're facing, like they're already addressing them. And we can learn so much from them. I have learned so much from these congregations. And I think just having that learning and listening stance, as opposed to, you know, we're here to help fix things we sometimes step in and try to fix things when we don't even know what the problem is. Hmm. And so I think just that reminder that these people, they know their community, they know their congregation, they know what's needed, and they're working hard to develop those solutions. And so if you are a congregation that is wanting to assist or help with a multicultural congregation or a congregation that's different from you, it starts by listening Mm -hmm. and it starts by learning. And that may be a lengthy period of listening and learning, not just, you know, one conversation, but trying to understand the scope and scale of what is happening, what they're trying to do, and then finding ways to assist in that, but not coming in with the mentality or the attitude that we're here to help fix you (laughs) because that's not, it's not necessary and it's a misunderstanding of the situation. Yep. And that's a great reminder because that we're here to help fix you mindset is definitely a staple and a sign of, you know, at best colonial thinking at worst kind of racist or white supremacist thinking And not that there are evil intentions with that, Mm -hmm. but if we don't check that residue of our ideology, it can be harmful. And so I'm glad that you named that. And something else from the interview that is standing out to me is the comment that Sandy made about being invisible people Mm. and choosing to be invisible. It struck me because it's not something I think about all the time, but it feels so poignant, so accurate, you know, because being seen can be dangerous. Mm-hmm. I've shared on this podcast before, but you know, there's a woman here a couple years ago, probably 2018, 2019, who long story short, spent 30 plus years here in central Indiana, had kids here, but you know, she was undocumented because her parents brought her here when she was five. And though she'd spent 30 years, graduated from high school here, built her community here, was raising a family at a local church. 
Her husband was deported first, detained, and then deported, and then she ended up voluntarily, I say that in air quotes, voluntarily leaving to avoid forced deportation with her children. I don't know if she's made it back since. And so that's the risk of being seen, you know, even at a small trip to the grocery store on your way to work, if you are undocumented, it can feel really dangerous. And so I appreciated her highlighting that. And, you know, it just it made me wonder, okay, what are the ways that we can honestly support this community when being seen as a risk? You know, how do we support without drawing unnecessary attention, unhelpful attention to people that don't want attention drawn to them? Mm-hmm. And I don't know that I have great answers, but I appreciated her naming that because uh, it has, you know, it's kind of been percolating in my mind ever since. And just the awareness of things that we are completely unaware of depending on our cultural background. Then she referenced going to the library and seeing security personnel in the library. And, you know, as a white person, it doesn't even enter my mind to think that that might be a threat to me in any way, shape or form. But you're in a different culture. You see someone in a uniform that looks similar to, you know, a police officer. And so you don't know whether that person has the ability to call INS on you. And even for people with documentation, just that fear that you're going to get stopped and have that questioned, as opposed to, you know, I can stroll in and out because I'm a white male and no one thinks twice about it. It's eye-opening to understand. And I understand that, you know, the political landscape, the ethical landscape is tremendously complex. And there are so many viewpoints and sides to it. But just boiling it down to an individual and the fear that they have to live in based on the culture in which they're existing, I think it's important for us to begin to recognize that and begin to have some empathy for it. Again, regardless of, you know, political stances, ethical stances, whatever, having compassion for someone living in fear because of either not understanding society or the stance of a society about them. And, you know, how do we love in those spaces? I love that you said that because I think regardless of what you think about this issue or these issues, if you can't just stop and acknowledge, dang, like that would be hard. Like it, it must be really uncomfortable to walk around with that much fear all the time. Like that must feel really disruptive. If you can't just stop there, then I think you got to do some self-evaluation, right? Because because that's not about an ideology. That's about empathy. That's about love. That's about care, especially as a person of faith, especially someone who claims, you know, if you claim the Christian faith, that care, that empathy, that willingness to kind of move past beliefs and just see people and acknowledge their contextual realities, that is at the heart of the faith. Mm-hmm. And I think that gets lost sometimes. So I'm glad that you named that because that is so incredibly important. Yeah. And another thing that I thought about with the interview is the importance of, you know, as we think about what we do as a congregation, because a lot of congregations are involved in short-term missions trips, and those are good things. But I think the primary framing of things like that, or if you go and do inner-city ministry, if you do some kind of work and witness downtown somewhere, going in with the sense of what can I learn from this and how can I change from this, rather than what am I providing to this community? Because it's important. I mean, what you're doing, you know, the work and witness trips that we do overseas or in in other countries, the way that we try to bring resources and value to them is good and right. But I think the primary importance, at least in my experience of those trips and those situations, has been how it's helped me learn about other cultures and begin to reflect about myself and the blind spots that I have and the things that I take for granted. So I just encourage you that as you think about your congregation and whatever it is that you're invested in, whatever ways you're trying to reach out into the world, 
make sure you're seeing the side of that that is how do we learn, grow, and change as a result of this, not just what we're bringing to someone else. Yes, 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 a thousand times yes. I'd also add, you know, I invite people to be curious about what conditions have led us up to this point. So say you're going to Haiti for a short-term mission trip. You know, it's one thing to know, oh, you know, there's a need for reliable, sturdy, safe housing here. It's another thing to take a step beyond that and to ask, okay, why? How did things get this way? What is the history of this place? Who are the actors involved? Because I think it would be very illuminating. You might realize that your own government has played a very strong part in contributing to the deteriorating conditions in other places. And when I have had that realization, it has changed the frame with which I approach service work like that. I'm much more open to learning, much more open to understanding, rather than just assuming I have all the solutions. So in the spirit, Matt, of kind of empathizing and learning, you know, I'm wondering what resources you wanted to bring to supplement this conversation. Yeah, I want to bring an article written by our president, Reverend Dr. Tim Shapiro, called The Multicultural Congregation. It's uh, basically a blog post that talks about embracing diversity, rich congregational experience, and then it also cites some resources. And so I think as an organization, we are learning more and more about multiculturalism. And Tim kind of distills a lot of the information into this article. So it's a good article and also, again, points to other resources that the Center for Congregations has found and think it'd be a good starting place. What about you? Matt over here trying to gain brownie points with the president. Jeez. <laughs> no, that is a good article, Matt. So thank you for bringing that. And I'm going to keep it simple today as well. I've got a resource from our CRG called Nine Mental Health Resources for the Latinx Community. And this is an article that does what it says. It's simply nine different resources for the Latinx community. The first will be familiar to everyone. It's NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness. But they've also got the American Society of Hispanic Psychiatry, Therapy for Latinx, Psychology Today, and several other resources. So it's just a good compilation of resources for the Latinx community around mental health. Check it out and you can find it on our CRG. And I also wanted to bring a book that just sounds absolutely intriguing to me. It's called God's Tapestry, Understanding and Celebrating Differences. It was written by William Condrath, who is an Episcopal priest and seminary professor. And he talks about a threefold process of becoming multicultural, which starts with recognizing differences, secondly, understanding differences, and third, valuing and celebrating those differences. And I think that's such an important piece of not only understanding, but seeing the strength of it. And that's one of the things about the interview that I appreciated was Sandy talking about what she values in multiculturalism. So remember, there are plenty of other resources on the CRG, T-H-E-C-R-G dot org. And uh, I typed in multicultural and there were like just dozens and dozens of resources on there about multiculturalism and multicultural congregational life. So please check out the CRG. Yeah. You know, also for that matter, if you're interested in hearing other conversations with Latinx or Hispanic leaders, we've got several other podcast episodes that do that. So look in the back catalog of this podcast. You can find collections on the CRG or you can check that out anywhere you listen to podcasts. In addition, you can follow us on social media at Center for Congregations on Facebook or Instagram. And that's a quick way to stay up to date with upcoming activities, education events, podcast episodes, just to kind of remain in the loop on what's going on here at the center. We would be remiss if we didn't thank the generosity of the Lilly Endowment for their support of our work. It's what makes this podcast and all of the work of the Center for Congregations possible. Yes, and thank you, Jaden Lee, for making us sound competent and intelligent. We know it's a tall task, but you do it with a plum. So thank you. He does it with a plum? He does it with a plum, like a fruit? <laughs> no, with, with excellence, if you will. 
Okay. Is that not the right use of that word? I think you were looking for aplomb. Aplomb? Yeah, it rhymes with bomb. That's how you pronounce it? Yeah. How do you spell it? A-P-L-O-M-B. Ah, I think you're correct. Jaden, can you keep this all in there? I think it's hilarious and I would like it to stay. <laughs> um, <laughs> you are correct, Matt. Yes, I was looking for a plum. I like a plum better personally. So I'm just going to let our audience, if you want to use a plum, let's see if we can get it trending on Twitter. Let's see if we can kind of have a little cultural revolution regarding language and just change it. Because many things in the English language don't make sense anyway. So why not add one more? Um, <laughs> but that's just me. That's just me. I'd like a plum right now. <laughs> yeah, I'm not a big plum fan. It's a fun fruit, though, because it's purple. Anyway, I'm getting way too sidetracked with plums. So if you're listening this deep in the podcast, we would love for you to just email plum to podcast at centerforcongregations.org just to know that uh, highly doubtful. There's probably one, maybe two people <laughs> who've made it this deep. Let us know you're still listening by emailing plum to podcast at centerforcongregations.org. This is where the gold is, folks. This is where the gold is. <laughs> Speaking of Jaden, Jaden lives in Australia. And so, you know, we, we get a lot of our Australian listens from Jaden, but we have listeners all over the world. And so we want to give a periodic shout out to those of you that are listening, especially those that are listening outside of Indiana. So I'm going to take just a step over state lines and give a shout out to all of our listeners in Chicago, Illinois. Chi Town, stand up. Thank you to the home of Kanye, Derrick Rose, and Michael Jordan. We appreciate y'all supporting the Center for Congregations podcast. And, you know, we'd love to have your continued support. And to those Chi-Town listeners, if you appreciated the shout out, take a moment and leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. That is the fastest way for new listeners to find this podcast. So Chi-Town, thank you for your support. Thank you for those five-star ratings. And we look forward to hearing from you. Plums in Chicago. Plums in Chicago. (laughs) Indeed. Well, hey, everyone, we appreciate your listenership, and we'll be back in a couple of weeks for the Center for Congregations. I am Matt Burke. And I'm going to find a plum. Take care, y'all. <laughs>